Today we have three guests and we'll be discussing the Wolfer introduction that is on the ballot this November 3rd. For those of you that don't know, Proposition 114 proposes to develop a plan to reintroduce and manage gray wolves in Colorado to take necessary steps to begin the reintroduction by December 3rd, 2023, and to pay for compensation for livestock losses caused by the gray wolves. For those that are listening, if you're listening before November 3rd or not, we encourage you all to have dialogue around these issues. Human wildlife conflict will become more common with habitat loss. So these conversations we need to get more comfortable with having, especially as natural resource students. With that being said, let's introduce our first guest, Rick Knight. I know you've worked with a lot of students and have a lot of experience in Warner. Can you just talk about how you got where you are? Well, thanks, uh, Becky and Kelly. Um, yeah, I've, I've actually been at CSU and the Warner College before it was the Warner College. In fact, in those days, it was the College of Forestry and Natural Resources. But um, uh, I'm um, all my degrees are in wildlife conservation, and that's what I practice, and I really try to emphasize the coming together of the human dimension, the economic dimension, and the ecological dimension for conservation that works for both people and for the land. Wow, that's awesome. A lot of students have, that have worked with you and have had you as a professor, can you talk about how you got to where you are in your experiences with Warner? You know, I, I mean, actually, it wasn't through the normal academic channels. It's something that I guess I, I really don't talk about. My, my wife worked for the Nature Conservancy for 25 years, and she was hired to manage a, um, an isolated 1,100-acre tract of land 25 miles north of town called Phantom Canyon. And the Nature Conservancy, as John Sanderson, one of the three speakers well uh, knows so well, was going through this transition where they were trying to focus instead of on these small sort of postage stamps protected areas to try to focus on the breadth of a watershed. And so Heather and I had to leave Fort Collins and we moved to the Livermore Valley where this 1,100-acre postage stamp was protected. And Heather was instructed to start working with our neighbors through this thing. At the time, it, it really didn't have a name. We ended up calling it ecosystem management, and then it morphed to watershed-based or collaborative or community-based. You can virtually call it anything you want to. It's not been officially mandated by, by Congress. And that type of work means that you develop trust. Neighbor becomes a verb instead of a noun. And, um, and it just, everything heretofore had been academic for me. You know, typical bachelor's, master's, PhD. It was all academic. And that was about having graduate students and publishing papers. And all of a sudden, in, in my spare time, I was working with our neighbors to try to conserve a watershed that realtors and developers eyed hungrily to the, from the south of uh, from Fort Collins, they wanted to buy all those ranches and break them up into small acreage ranchettes. And in those days, Colorado was literally losing the size of Rocky Mountain National Park every year of private farm and ranch lands into residential and commercial development. So people were actually talking about a build out when all the private land, which is like 63% of Colorado, was going to be homes and commercial development. Not that we were losing, you know, a quarter of a million acres a year, a very productive land. And if you're a conservation biologist, a wildlife biologist, the way I am, and you care 
care about the maintenance of our natural heritage, you cannot stand by and, and let that happen. And so uh, amazingly across the state of Colorado, all these sort of community-based collaborative watershed-based conservation efforts started coalescing and people started working together to try to conserve open space. That was good for both people and animals. That's wow. probably enough. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're fine. That was really interesting. It sounds like you and your wife are quite the power couple. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, that's such an awesome story. That Thanks for sharing that with us. Uh, all right, next we have Brielle, who is a grad student with Courtney Schultz. Can you kind of go over what it's like to be a grad student during a pandemic and how that's impacted your research in policy? Yeah, sure. So yeah, I'm a grad student with Courtney Schultz, and, and we kind of focus on the policy implications of wolf reintroduction here in Colorado. But yeah, being a grad student during a pandemic has been interesting as it's been for everybody, I'm sure. I think the biggest thing is just having to, and I'm sure this is the same for everybody, but just being flexible right? You know, with grad school, there's boxes that you check, you know, on your way to graduation, same with undergrad, right? So every semester, you're working towards that goal of, you know, graduating. And usually, you know, in May through August uh, of your second semester or summer of your second semester, you do your field work. So you start your research, right? Obviously, that was kind of like the height of the pandemic. So I know a lot of grad students, myself included, just had to be flexible with, okay, so what I envisioned for my research isn't going to pan out. How am I going to change this and still have intentional and legitimate research? Right. And for me, that was all qualitative research, which is, you know, basically just interviews with people. So it was my original plan to go around Colorado and interview different land managers and people in agencies or go up to Wyoming and Idaho or down in New Mexico and Arizona and interview people. But obviously that had to change. And I was lucky that I could just do it all on the phone. But obviously it also kind of hindered the process where, you know, people were really struggling during this time. And, you know, when I send out an, an email being like, hey, do you have an hour to talk to me? They're like, well, this is not my top priority right now. There's a global pandemic going on. So that was you know, just an interesting process to go through. But yeah, you know, I had to figure out how to work from home. Like everybody, I built myself a desk because I was like, I can't work from my bed for the next year. So let's figure out how to do this. Yeah. Awesome. And I know some of the work you and Courtney do is in the Human Carnivore Coexistence Center. Can you explain what the center does? I don't think many people really know about it. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So the Center for Human Carnivore Coexistence at CSU is run by some, you know, just really great faculty members that have a lot of experience in carnivore research and carnivore conservation, um, you know, such as Kevin Crooks, Becky Nemec, Stuart Breck, Courtney Schultz. Um, and there are a lot of grad students working under these professors that have a variety of different research projects. A lot of them right now are focusing on the potential wolf reintroduction here in Colorado, but we also have people working on things like coexistence issues with lions in Africa or urban coyote issues or even issues with feral cats throughout the U.S. So yeah, it's just a really cool center that um, really has a goal of just promoting coexistence between carnivores and humans through, you know, education, science, outreach, and, you know, just being able to have these sustainable carnivore populations, but also being able to have, you know, human endeavors thrive with just very minimal conflict. Thank you, Brielle, for sharing all of that. That was helpful. And I'm just going to segue into our final panelist, um, who is John Sanderson. John, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, but, uh, yes, I do very much, but uh, I'm happy to. Thank you for having me here today. I first want to respond a tiny bit to, to Rick and Brielle. To Kelly's comment about Rick and Heather being quite the couple 
they are. They are extraordinary individuals, and they've collectively and individually had a tremendous impact on uh, conservation in Colorado and throughout the West. Northwest of Fort Collins, true, in the Phantom Canyon area, but the, the area they've touched is much larger than that. And the reason that that's worth, one of the reasons that that's worth knowing for actual and prospective students here at CSU is that so many people come to CSU because they want to make the world a better place. They want to actually have impact in the world. And Rick and Heather are both um, very great examples of how that can happen through an institution like CSU. And CSU is and Warner College in particular is, is just really filled with people making a tremendous impact in the world. So, so that's really, really awesome. Thanks, awesome. Man. <laughs> Yeah, you're welcome, Rick. And, and it's very sincerely meant. Um, and, and Heather works on the CCC staff, by the way, on the staff of the Center for Collaborative Conservation, and uh, where I really get the great privilege of working with her. I love the question about the pandemic um, and would love to add a couple other pieces to that, particularly as it relates to the agricultural producers um, who must be in this conversation about uh, the future of wolves in Colorado because our ag producers will be, I think it's probably fair to say, um, if anyone experiences direct negative impacts, it will be our agricultural producers or at least some of our agricultural producers. While we're having this conversation, now more after I think last night's run of the East Troublesome Creek fire, we've had um, over half a million acres of forest burn in Colorado. Um, part of the reason that those forests are burning is because Colorado is um, in the entire state is in some degree of drought. And uh, as a result of the pandemic, our ag producers have also experienced supply chain disruption. And so rural Colorado is hurting in a pretty big way right now. So are quite a few people on the front range where we've been impacted by these fires. But, but rural Colorado is is tough, is in a tough spot right at the moment. And and the the prospect of having uh, wolves reintroduced, one more factor on top of all of these things going on. It's it's another layer of stress that I think we all need to be cognizant of as we sit in here in Fort Collins relatively safe and relatively immune from a lot of the things that that other Coloradans are experiencing. So that was nothing about me uh, specifically, so I'll share a little <laughs> bit about my background. Uh, so my, my route was a little bit more circuitous than Rick's. Um, I left my undergraduate degree in engineering not knowing what I was going to do next, I joined the Peace Corps and then uh, did ultimately do two different stints in graduate school that were separated by a few years. But I didn't finish my PhD until I was uh, in my mid 30. And um, I finished a PhD uh, here at uh, CSU in the graduate degree program in ecology. And then uh, immediately upon graduating, I went to work for the Nature Conservancy. Uh, and that's where I first met Heather and, and met Rick as well. 
and uh, worked for the Nature Conservancy for 15 years as the director of science for Colorado. And then just a year ago, came back to Colorado State to be the director of the Center for Collaborative Conservation. Wow, that's awesome. Um, Could you explain a little bit more about what the collaborative conservation is or the Center of Collaborative Conservation is? And um, because I know a lot of students don't know what that is. And could you explain what that means to you and what it means in Colorado? Yeah, great question. Um, So what does the Center for Collaborative Conservation do? We help uh, people to work together to get conservation done. That's that's our focus. We do that by building skills and by providing tools and connecting people and occasionally participating in um, collaborative efforts geared at conservation outcomes that serve both biodiversity and people. So what does collaboration mean? Um, that's it's It's actually a a word that has been dissected and studied for many, many years. Um, But I can tell you what it means to me. Um, It means working closely with all of the people who are, uh, who have an interest in the topic we're working on and listening very closely, having an inclusive process, sharing power, sharing decision-making, and really, you know, really with just relationship and, and empathy deeply embedded in the process. Um, a lot of people think collaboration is just working together. That is a type of collaboration. A lot of people do that. The kind of collaboration we're interested in is, is much deeper than that with respect to the relationships and the way we, we work together to build trust and to listen and to have empathy and to incorporate diverse perspectives and viewpoints. The, the theory is, and there's a lot of evidence that at least in many situations, this theory stands. The theory is that if we can create solutions that really do address the needs of a broad range of stakeholders, then one, we will have better solutions because we have brought in the creativity and knowledge of a broader group of individuals. And two, the solutions we come up with are more likely to to endure and to be accepted among all of the groups that need to support the decisions. And they, um, they, they will support the decisions because they are a part of the decision-making and helped create those decisions. So that's what, that's what collaborative conservation means to me and the CCC. Yeah, thanks so much for that insight, John. I can tell you're really passionate about uh, just inclusivity, which is so important in conservation-sensitive involves everyone's, uh, everyone to get on the same page to get stuff done. So I think after hearing that, a lot of students will be interested in how to get involved in the Center for Collaborative Conservation. Can you talk about opportunities that undergraduates have to dip their toes in the sand? Yeah, sure. I, um, so there are a, quite, a, quite a number of different ways that, that you can see what we're doing and, and sometimes actually participate in what we're doing. We do a number of things um, that are right now all virtual, but um, kind of outreachy, sharing things uh, through webinars and so forth where we, where we share insights into our work. You're welcome to show up to any of those this 
This evening at five o'clock, we have the last of five-part series about uh, wool that we're doing in partnership with the Denver Museum of Nature and Science. On Tuesday, we are co-sponsoring a, a webinar with uh, the Center for Environmental Justice um, that is going to be on uh, inequitable access to nature. So you can show up to those kinds of things. There are occasionally volunteer opportunities. Uh, a big one that's still a year off, but is going to come at us really fast is that we put on every 18 months, we put on a, a conference that for the Western Collaborative Conservation Network, which is uh, a group of hundreds of individuals across the West who meet to share learning and share insights and tools and so forth. That meeting is going to be in Montana next fall, and we're going to need a slew of volunteers to plan for that meeting and to pull it off. Um, we occasionally hire interns. Anything that we're going to uh, hire an intern for, we will post on Handshake. So pay attention to that and feel free to take a look at our website because we'll also post any opportunities on the website as well. Wow, that sounds like quite a lot of different opportunities. Um, and it's only just gonna get crazier, I think, for you guys now that we're talking about introducing wolves and the proposal 114. Um, so my next question for you guys is kind of open-ended, so anybody can answer this or all, everyone can answer this. And it is, what things should people keep in mind about this issue? You can go first, Rick, and then I'll follow up. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, I mean, one, one way I think to possibly, uh, I mean, a statement that I could make to possibly pose to, to get people to think about this issue, and it actually, it doesn't matter what I think, but, but I can kind of set it up this way. I am absolutely for wolf reintroduction. Or, or I should put it this way, I guess. I am not against wolf reintroduction. But what I am for is reintroducing wolves so the wolves find themselves in a receptive environment as opposed to an extremely hostile environment, uh, which, which they encountered in the Northern Rockies. There was so much rural hostility uh, to wolves that I just felt sorry for the wolves because they, they didn't have a whole lot of friends out there. So I'm for that, but I'm also for uh, wolves finding themselves in an environment in which the people feel like all their concerns and fears, potential economic hardships have been addressed. And so, in other words, getting the human and the ecological dimensions right together, I have no doubt that we can reintroduce wolves in, in the Colorado. And I don't want to trivialize that, that so it comes across as oh, that simple. You know, you just back an 18-wheeler onto a piece of um, public land and open the, the door and the wolves go out and they start breeding like dogs, and the next thing you know, you've got wolves falling off the trees. I know we can do that, though. The hard part is getting the human dimension right, because it's so nuanced. <laughs> I mean, and in fact, a, a real danger of focusing on the human dimension is generalizing, you know, for, for like rural communities. There's actually plenty of people in rural communities that are in favor of having wolves. Um, but it's just, it's so much more complicated, uh, particularly that human dimension, the information spreads on that through social media in so many complex, hard to actually address ways. And, and so it just leaves you, it, it leaves you shaking your head and wish uh, that you had a second chance at, to, to do it better and to get it right. 
And the interesting thing about it, we have learned culturally so much about reintroducing wolves through the Northern Rocky experience. And I guess we could include um, Arizona and New Mexico uh, experience as well. I should include those. I think we've learned so much about those. Colorado is in, in this unusual situation where we can, we can do it better we can, you know, practice adaptive management and take all the lessons that people are willing to share in the American Southwest and, and the Northern Rockies, and we can make sure those are implemented in the Colorado experiment so both wolves and people get along much better together than, than what's occurred elsewhere. Yeah, that's an amazing um, perspective. I've talked with wildlife biologists about any wildlife reintroduction. And one of them told me that there's no point in reintroducing wildlife if the local community is not for it, because it'll break all those ties that between wildlife biologists and the local community and the animal usually ends up (laughs) being shot at. So like all the money that went into reintroducing those animals is wasted and it just turns into a big mess. And I've really been thinking about that a lot with this wolf reintroduction. So yeah, Brielle, I know you were wanting to say something next about this. Yeah, sure. I think Rick said a lot of points that I would say as well. But I think something that just came to mind too is just because Rick brought up um, public lands, right? So we'll probably be, if reintroduction passes, we'll be reintroducing on public lands. But, you know, the extent of public lands, just it gives us such a unique opportunity for biodiversity conservation and just restoration, you know, throughout all of the U.S. But at the same time, we do really need to remember the history of these public lands and that there are so many users and so many communities that depend on these areas. And it just makes the issue really complex And it makes it one that, you know, needs intentional stakeholder engagement. There are so many different communities and communities of users around these public areas that we need to have relationships with if we're going to be doing these conservation efforts, right? And it's just all about, you know, making sure there's understanding of other people's perspectives and just, you know, it's just a critical part of the equation. Something else that comes to mind, which I think is often overlooked in reintroductions or just when people are thinking about wolf reintroduction is just, you know, we're, we can't just go out there and dump wolves on public lands, though. You know, we're, we can't just take a trailer and dump them out there because um, there are so many legal barriers and protections that are afforded to wolves. Um, you know, right now, the wolf is considered an endangered species in Colorado and it's afforded like major protections under the Endangered Species Act, which if you look at that law is, is rather substantive and has a lot of pretty... Um, strict requirements, right? I mean, there, there are some flexibilities that you can have through the Endangered Species Act when reintroducing, but it still does give the wolf a lot of um, protections, right? But also, if you look at it, you know, at a larger scale, there is currently a rule proposed to federally delist the wolf, um, which would completely change how we're able to manage and reintroduce, which I think is something people don't really know is that there's different authorities if a wolf is endangered, right? So if a wolf is endangered, it'd be the Fish and Wildlife Service that has authority. But if that um, ruling goes through to federally delist, then we can have a state reintroduction. So Colorado Parks and Wildlife could have that authority to reintroduce. And you're just looking at two very different reintroductions and different management plans, I would say, depending on if that rule goes through. And that rule was proposed in 2019. So it honestly could go through any day now. And yeah, I think there's just a lot up in the air. And there's a lot of complexities to this. And it's just there's no way that we're just going to go out there and, and dump the wolves. There's a lot of legal barriers to go around as well. 
Oh, thank you, Brielle. I had no idea about all those listing classifications, and I think most people probably don't know the all the policy behind that, so that was super helpful. Um, kind of bouncing off of both Brielle and Rick about the human dimensions and how important that is. Um, John, obviously you're really involved in that with collaborative conservation. Can you speak about some of the safety concerns that are some of the main arguments against the wolf reintroduction for the human dimensions aspect of it all? Yeah, sure. I can talk to that a little bit, but I'll start by mentioning that the Center for Human Carnivore Coexistence, Center for Collaborative Conservation, and CSU Extension created a series of a dozen wolf information sheets. And we believe that these are perhaps the best, most comprehensive and reliable source of information on wolves that are available in the public sphere right now. Because if you certainly if you if you just search the web for Colorado wolves or spend any time on social media, you're going to see some things that are worth paying attention to. And you're going to see a lot of stuff that is rhetoric and exaggerated and misleading. And so we tried very hard in these wolf information sheets to uh, provide science-based information that's relatively balanced. I think we did a decent job with that. We've gotten some, some good feedback on those wolf information sheets. Not everyone loves them, but I, I, think they're, I think they're a great resource that I would point people to you can find them. I just tested this. If you if you go to Google and you type Wolf Information Sheets, Colorado State University, the first link will be a link to those information sheets. And um, check it out. They, they spend, there's some of them that are on biology and taxonomy. There's one on policy, what Brielle was just talking about. There are a couple on human dimensions, one on economics, and there's one on safety. And what we know about human safety is that it's extremely rare that there are uh, any conflicts between direct conflicts between wolves and people where wolves are attacking people. It's extremely rare that in the entire 20th century, there was, I think, if I'm recalling correctly from the info sheet, um, not a single verified death of a human being in North America from a wolf attack. There were a couple of incidents where people were injured, um, but the likelihood of injury and definitely the likelihood of death are extremely, extremely small. This evening, we're actually going to be talking about living with wolves in my uh, last episode at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science. And we'll be hearing from Kim Skylander, who works on my staff. And she lived for seven years in Silver Bay, Minnesota. And she used to have wolves walking up and down the streets, like whole packs of wolves walking up and down the streets in front of her house. <laughs> And there was uh, never, never experienced any, any harm to people at all. Now, pets, it can be a little bit different, particularly with dogs, because dogs are competitors. And, it, and you do have to be more careful with your dogs. One of the things we talk about in the info sheets is that if, if you have a dog that you are taking into the woods uh, in areas where wolves live, you probably don't want to let that dog run off leash because they might well tangle with the wolves and there's a good chance the wolves will win. And so, you know, the safety, the safety consideration is, I think, 
it falls into that category of things that are misconceptions that wolves are really dangerous for humans. Whether you look at Yellowstone or the Northern Rockies, other places where wolves exist, there's just not a problem. Uh, for human safety and wolves. Yeah, thanks for that insight, John. Um, After mentioning the informational sheets that CSU has, can you speak more on how CSU uh, plays a role in the wolf reintroduction, maybe in the science or the social science aspect of it? Yeah, well, I think the Center for Human Carnivore Coexistence has done a lot for, you know, just putting out a lot of education, a lot of science, a lot of research behind um, potential wolf reintroduction here. You know, my own research has looked at wolf reintroduction and just lessons that can be learned from past reintroductions in the Yellowstone area and the down with the Mexican wolf. Yeah, CSU, and then CSU obviously has put out those informational packets. Yeah, and then the Center for Collaborative Conservation, which John can talk more about this, but this year they have a fellows program with grad students that I'm a part of, and it is focused on the wolf reintroduction. So that's all geared towards having collaborative research focusing specifically on wolf reintroduction. So, you know, another thing that's going on as well as CSU's orchestrating the stakeholder engagement plan for wolf reintroduction has about a five-year timescale on it. And CSU has just done an amazing job of trying to have this as balanced as possible. So we include the ag concerns, uh, the people, you know, in ranching and farming's concerns, as well as the uh, the science and trying to remain neutral in terms of uh, the overall desire of wolf reintroduction in Colorado. So that stakeholder engagement plan uh, is, um, it's just, it's just an amazing attempt to be inclusive and to take the appropriate time to try to, if 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 we get support for this and can follow through on it, um, to to do it right, to do it better. I do think it's worth. Thank you for that, Rick and Brio. I, I do think it's worth uh, mentioning that if Proposition One Fourteen passes, then the law, the new law, will direct the Colorado Parks and Wildlife Commission to make and implement a plan to reintroduce wolves. So uh, there's no there's no mention of CSU in the in the law. And right now, Colorado Parks and Wildlife, like any state agency, they cannot engage on this topic because it's a public, uh, it's a it's a ballot proposition that will change law and is being put in front of the public. So, so they can't render any opinion. They have to be very careful about what they say and what information that they put out. And I think that's over the past six to nine months as CSU has been putting information out. I, I hope that it's been helpful in getting information out and beating the drum on good process uh, while our sister agency has been unable to participate in the dialogue. You know, that said, I think what the, the way that, that CSU is going to be engaging going forward, I think we potentially have quite a bit to offer around research engagement with ag producers through extension and and other means as well what what that looks like going forward 
very much remains to be seen and depends a lot on what happens on November 3rd. Well, thank you guys for answering um, all of these questions. I wish that Kelly and I had time to talk to you guys about this all day because I know that we've just scratched the surface with this problem and it's way more complex than what we've already talked about. We haven't even been able to talk about groups like the Hunter community and their perspective on it. Mm. But um, for the sake of time, we'll have to end the podcast there. That's all we have for this episode of Tune Into Nature. Tune in next time to hear about student panel talk about different clubs and organizations that they are a part of and how they're adjusting to virtual events. See you next time on Tune Into Nature.